Join us October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for a fundraising gala and to celebrate the 2022 Distinguished Citizens Awards. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club to support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to uh, tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club with Chris Miller and his important new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Um, And it's actually Jackson Square Partners uh, that's uh, sponsoring tonight. That's uh, the firm that I work for and my associate radiance Chapman here. In my decade or so of hosting Commonwealth Club Talks, this is by far, I think, the most timely discussion. Um, given the re- U- uh, recent U.S. announcement of export controls targeting China's semiconductor industry. Um, again, Ken Broad with Jackson Square Partners. Um, it's great to be back in person in this beautiful facility. If people haven't been here before, there's a rooftop garden. I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. So r- rather than trying to convince everyone to become members, bring other people here to experience it because it's really wonderful and it's great to be back in person. Um, On the book, there's growing recognition that the control of lucrative market for advanced semiconductors will impact our economy and geopolitics for decades to come. Thus, the liberal internationalist ethos of the past few decades is ceding to a growing recognition of China's growing threat and leading to the U.S. uh, to weaponize interdependence uh, in the supply chain for semiconductors. Taiwan is essentially the Saudi Arabia of chips, as we'll hear. Um, which are the oil of the modern economy, and thus growing tensions over Taiwan carry disproportionately high stakes for the global economy. Um, Today's program with Chris Miller will be moderated by one of my all-time favorite uh, authors and speakers, Neil Ferguson, um, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a senior faculty fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. Uh, Before turning it over to Neil, I wanted to announce that all in-person attendees tonight will receive a free copy of Chip Wars as a reward for taking the time to return to the Commonwealth Club in person for programming and discussion. So thank you all again for coming in person. And Neil, please uh, take it away. Well, thank you very much indeed, Uh, Ken. It's great to be uh, back at the Commonwealth Club uh, uh, thanks to everybody for turning up uh, in the live audience in the real space uh, environment. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here with uh, Chris Miller. Full disclosure, once upon a time, Chris was my student at Harvard. Uh, so long ago that we don't count the number of years. Uh, he has gone on to a, a brilliant uh, career. Uh, he's uh, now a professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts. Uh, this is, I think, your fourth book, Chris. Uh, just to give you a sense of how timely Chris Miller's books are, I'll give you the titles of the others. Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, We Shall Be Master, uh, Masters, Russia's Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin, and The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR. So we could quite easily have a conversation about another war, uh, namely the one uh, that's going on in Ukraine. But instead, we're going to talk about your new book, Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. And I want to begin with a quote from the book, Chris. 
In the age of AI, you write, it's often said that data is the new oil. Yet the real limitation we face isn't the availability of data, but of processing power. Explain. Over the past 60 years, since the first computer chip was invented, chips have improved per the rate predicted by Gordon Moore. In other words, the number of transistors on each chip doubles roughly annually. And what that means is the number of ones and zeros that we can apply to computing doubles at the same rate. It's only because of chips and the transistors on them that we have the computing that makes software possible or the internet possible or all the technology we rely on. And the fact that we've been getting a doubling of that computing power for so long has uh, has made possible the tech firms that we think about when we think about technology. And the question of who controls that computing power, who produces it, who's able to access it, is, I think, the most important question structuring international economy today and international politics, because the production of transistors at the scale we're talking about, and on your iPhone, you'll have 10 billion transistors just on the biggest of uh, around a dozen or so chips in your iPhone. The production of transistors is the hardest thing humans have ever done in terms of manufacturing. And so controlling access to these transistors, which we rely on for everything in our daily lives, uh, is the most uh, important question in the world economy today, I would argue. And unlike oil, which is produced in lots of countries, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United States, only a couple of countries can produce advanced semiconductors. And we rely on one partial country, Taiwan, for the production of 90% of the most advanced processor chips. So there's extraordinary concentration in Taiwan, uh, to the extent that much of it, most of us are barely aware. And it's good if you're not aware because you'll sleep better at night mm. <laughs> thinking about, uh, not thinking about the extent to which all technology that we depend on could be knocked out if there was a small emergency in Taiwan. I want to come back to the Taiwan question and some of these big strategic issues that you raise in the book. Uh, but first, I want to emphasize this is a history book. And it, in a way, it's, it's right, rather like Dan Jurgen's book, The Prize, which some of you may uh, have read, which, which told the history of oil, of the oil industry, and was published with perfect timing to coincide with the first Gulf War. And I'm kind of hoping that your timing is not that good, uh, that I'm hoping this is not going to coincide with the outbreak of war over Taiwan, that Nancy Pelosi seemed intent on helping you get there. But let's, let's begin with that backstory. As in Jürgen's book, you tell the story of where this all began. You take us back to the time when the number of transistors in a cutting-edge chip was four. And I really enjoyed the book's telling of this story because it, it's a story of, of unsung heroes, of, of names that maybe with the exception of, of God Moore are not household names. Give us a flavor of that story. Who were the men, and I'm sorry, they were nearly all men, who, who invented semiconductors, who made the chip. And how did, how did it happen? Because I think we have a vague sense in our minds that, that Silicon Valley sprung up. But how did it happen? And why, and why did it happen where it happened? There's always been a demand for computing power. Uh, since since cavemen, humans have been flipping their fingers up and down to count, uh, which is not a very efficient way to compute, but it's what you do if that's the only computing access you've got. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, computer was a profession. You could be a computer, work at an insurance company, sit in an office in Manhattan and do the computing that their actuarial uh, tables required. Uh, that was also not very efficient because computers required lunch breaks at the time, salaries, uh, occasionally made mistakes. 
Uh, and so there's been, uh, from that time, a desire to improve computing power. The vacuum tube was invented uh, shortly thereafter, which was what powered computers during World War II. And so during World War II, the most advanced uh, computers had 20,000 vacuum tubes inside, the little light bulb-like devices that would switch on and off. When they were on, they produced a one, off they produced a zero, and that was uh, kind of the equivalent of a, a chip today, except it took up an entire room, uh, used lots of electricity, and occasionally the the fact that they would create light when they turned on would attract moths, which is actually the origins of debugging uh, in, in computing today. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why vacuum tubes were, were unsatisfactory. And so uh, in the 1950s, there was uh, a lot of research into the question of how do you further miniaturize computing power? Uh, you couldn't take a room-sized computer and fit it on a missile, for example, and yet missile technology was the key question uh, of U.S. Uh, defense efforts in the 1950s and 1960s, both to get uh, people into space, but more importantly, to get nuclear weapons to the Soviet Union. And getting them accurately to the Soviet Union required putting missile, uh, computers on missiles, and this required miniaturization. And so uh, in the late 1950s, a number of individuals were working on how do you miniaturize this process, and they came up with the idea of putting multiple transistors, tiny electrical circuits that switch on and off onto a single block of silicon. The first chip that was commercially viable was put in the guidance computer of the Apollo spacecraft. The second major order for chips was for the Minuteman II intercontinental ballistic missile. And so there's a deep interrelationship with, uh, between the military industrial complex and the chip industry from the very earliest days. And that was important um, because it made possible the, the, the U.S. competition in the Cold War arms race. Um, but the, the big shift actually was when the chip was no longer a military device and became a commercial device. And that's where people like Bob Noyce, the founder of Fairchild, and uh, most interestingly, I think Morris Chang uh, come into the picture. Um, Morris Chang is an uh, entrepreneur most people have never heard of. But in fact, I think he's one of the most interesting business people of the past 100 years. Born in mainland China, uh, fled the British-controlled Hong Kong during the war, and the communists took power. He fled again, enrolling at Harvard, where he was the only Chinese student in his class. Sort of a, a shocking change from, uh, from what you'll see at Harvard uh, today. Uh, then he gave up at Harvard. He transferred out after just one year. He was, he was initially studying Shakespeare. That's right. That's right. And, and he realized or concluded that Shakespeare was a, a bad subject for his job prospects. <laughs> so he abandoned Harvard. And Think of what a great Shakespeare scholar we lost. <laughs> but he, he enrolled down the street at MIT, studied physics and electrical engineering, and was hired by Texas Instruments, which was sort of the hot startup, if you will, of the 1950s, and personally built their semiconductor business. Can I take the story back to William Shockley? Because it's worth starting with science. There's a period of innovation that, in a sense, predates any kind of commercialization, and it wins some Nobel Prizes. One of the things that interests me is that you, you talk about Shockley, who's really the kind of pioneer pioneer, but you make the point that he was impossible. Brilliant, but absolutely impossible. Uh, talk a bit about what was impossible impossible about him and why he drove collaborators away? Because that seems like an important part of the story. Shockley was. So Shockley was one of the three people who won the Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor. Uh, and Shockley was renowned for his cap capabilities in theoretical physics. Uh, he was feted uh, across the country. He won the Nobel Prize, uh, but he was dissatisfied with just being a famous physicist. He wanted to, uh, he told a friend, he wanted to be not only on the pages of the Physical Review, the key physics academic journal, but also on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. And so he set off to start a company. 
uh, and his his mother lived in Palo Alto, so he chose Palo Alto uh, simply to to be close to her, uh, and founded a company applying the most advanced science which he himself had theorized. But he was a toxic manager; uh, his employees detested him. Um, and after just a, a year, uh, his smartest employees fled, uh, proving, I think, that scientific brilliance is is far from the only crucial ingredient in technological advance. And he quickly folded his uh, startup and went back to academia. And Stanford hired him after he failed at a startup uh, and spent the rest of his, his life teaching and then also developing a whole set of uh, controversial uh, racial theories of intelligence, which kind of veer off into uh, one direction. But I, I think the key... Um, key conclusion about Shockley is that scientific advances are important, but commercialization is even more important. So let's talk about that commercialization phase. Uh, it'll come as a blow to a Northern Californian audience that Texas Instruments is in some ways the key firm in the, in the early history. And we, we kind of think that Texas is new to the tech game. It's only recently that uh, star tech figures have moved to Austin. But your story reminds us that Texas was actually right there, present at the creation. Uh, tell us a bit more about Texas Instruments, because it seems like almost a lot of the key breakthroughs happened there. And uh, there, there are some more terrific characters. I was relieved to find Mary Ann Potter in there, because uh, she's the, one of the few women in the early history of, of, of uh, semiconductors. So give us a sense of who's at Texas Instruments Who's driving it uh, in this extraordinary phase of, of innovation? Uh, Morris Chang's one of them, but he's only one of a, an extraordinary group of talented people. That's right. And Texas Instruments was, was seen as one of the most exciting places to work in the 1950s. They were at the cutting edge of technology, which they'd honed during World War II, sonar technologies, for example, and radar technologies. And so they attracted people from across the country, and in the case of uh, Morris Chang and actually many others across the world uh, to work there. And the idea was that they could not only produce technology for the U.S. military, which they were very good at, but also find ways to commercialize it. And they played a major role in, in doing so. Uh, they, they tried and failed at transistor rail, uh, uh, radios at first, but they um, were very successful in pocket calculators, for example, which were sort of the iPhones of the 1970s, if you will, something that everyone had in their pocket. I am old enough to remember the <laughs> Texas Instrument <laughs> just to be clear. I think I may even have possessed one. <laughs> well, that was probably influenced by, by Morris Shang in the process. Um, and so Texas Instruments was really the center of chip making until the 19, late 60s or early 70s when the epicenter shifted uh, towards California. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, which is the other uh, pioneering business in, in your early narrative. Um, these are the defectors from the impossible Shockley, who, who, set, who set this up. Uh, and I want to understand a little bit about the difference between what Texas Instruments was doing and what Fairchild Semiconductor was doing. Who, who's doing what in this process of innovation? At, at the start, they ended up doing pretty similar things. Texas Instruments was a bit more focused on production for the military, whereas Bob Noyce, who was uh, one of the people alongside Gordon Moore, who founded Fairchild, kept more of an arm's length relationship with the military. And I think this is really pretty important because although it's true that military funding was crucial to the early stages of Silicon Valley, it's also true that many of the key leaders 
wanted to take advantage of military funding but pivot right away to the commercial market. And Noyce himself, the, the, one of the co-founders of Fairchild, had this in mind from the outset. He'd actually worked on a couple of Defense Department contracts at a previous job and found it immensely bureaucratic, stultifying in terms of its, um, in terms of the demands that they placed on him, and wanted to make sure that he could access a broader market. And he realized that broader market was computers for corporations, a civilian market where he saw far more customers and realized that if you could sell to more customers, you could scale your business in a way you never could with the Defense Department. And that was a crucial, uh, a crucial realization because it meant that rather than just selling to the Navy and the Army, you could sell to thousands of businesses. Across but it had to be in that order, as I understand it from, from chip war. If they hadn't had those initial Apollo and Minuteman contracts, they wouldn't have been able to scale uh, in a way that made it possible to commercialize the, the, the chip. Am I right about that? That's right. That's right. The, the, the first couple chips that were produced were brutally expensive. And so the only people that were willing to pay such a high price for miniaturized computing power was someone who needed to put it in a rocket. That was NASA or the Air Force for the missile programs. But one of the things that has characterized the industry since then is that costs have fallen at the exponential rate that Moore's law promised. And so after just a couple of years, costs were a tenth of the first chips. And that was a level that other companies like IBM, for example, one of the big tech companies of its day, could afford to pay for when it came to commercial computers. And the, the cost declines only materialized when you're able to scale and you could only scale with the civilian market. I'm very struck by the fact that uh, as today, right at the beginning, uh, in the tech world, immigrants play a crucial role. Two of the eight uh, founders of Fairchild were born outside the United States, including Andy Grove. And I didn't know that Andy Grove was originally Andrus Groff until I read uh, Chip War. Uh, Morris Chang, of course, uh, is, is the other foreign-born figure. Tell us a bit more about Andy Grove, whose early life was as ghastly as uh, really almost anybody who survived World War II in Eastern Europe. So Grove was from a Jewish family in, in Budapest, um, and Budapest was a city that survived both Soviet and Nazi invasions, uh, and both the Soviets and, and Nazis were competing for the most brutal uh, 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 invaders of Hungary during the war, uh, and the Jews of Budapest suffered as, as much as anyone. Um, he had to hide from the Nazis when they took over. His mother was raped by Soviet soldiers when the Soviets took over. And so, yes, he, he suffered as, as, as much as anyone and fled the United States uh, in the 1950s, um, enrolled at the City College of New York, uh, fell in love with electrical engineering and chemistry, uh, and did his PhD at Berkeley. At one point, he applied for a job at Fairchild and was uh, turned away uh, with the, the, the Fairchild uh, recruiter saying they prefer to come to their uh, – they, they prefer not to have people apply to them, but they prefer to come to the best people uh, so they, they get the, the, pick the cream of the crop at, at Berkeley and Stanford. Um, and the next year, as Fairchild kept growing, they were looking for more staffers, so they came to the chemistry department at, at Berkeley, and uh, Grove was recommended. He was interviewed by Gordon Moore. Uh, he said it was love at first sight. And he joined Fairchild, and then when uh, Moore and Noyce founded Intel in 1968, uh, was one of the first employees at Intel as well. And it's it's striking to me that that Intel is founded in 68, and this is sort of the beginning of the golden age of U.S. semiconductor manufacture. We, we associate 1968 and indeed the early 1970s with a crisis of American politics, a crisis of American power culminating in defeat in, in Vietnam. And yet your story tells us that 
without really much fanfare or much attention being paid, the United States is vaulting ahead. Now, we've talked about some of the fascinating characters uh, that populate the book and make it so readable that the New York Times acknowledged that it's, it's really quite unputdownable once you get into these stories because the characters are so fascinating. Uh, but now let's talk about this extraordinary strategic point that this is crucial to the Cold War, uh, what we might call Cold War One, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Uh, why did the Soviets struggle to keep up because this looks like one of the fatal flaws of their entire project, that, as you describe it, all they can really do is copy. They can't at all innovate. And because they're copying the chips that they're able to steal, they, they never do more than lag behind. That's like a pretty important part of the Cold War story, but I don't think I've ever really read about that anywhere, or at least... It's never been much more than a footnote in most histories of the Cold War. That was one of the key puzzles that actually set me off in writing this book. Why could the Soviet Union produce atomic weapons, shoot the first person into space, but not produce computing power? Uh, hardly at all. And it, it turns out that it's not about science. The Soviets had lots of smart physicists and even won several Nobel Prizes in fields related to semiconductor engineering. It's not a question of uh, uh, of, of knowledge. In fact, the Soviets not only had knowledge they produced at home, they had exchange students studying with William Shockley at Stanford as early as the late 1950s. Some of the earliest Soviet exchange students enrolled at Stanford to study semiconductor engineering. Sort of extraordinary. I wonder if the person who approved that application at the State Department knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, but it didn't matter. Uh, nor did it matter that the Soviets had spies. Some of the defectors who were associated with the Rosenberg spy ring uh, were electrical engineers, worked in the uh, U.S. defense industry during World War II, then defected to the Soviet Union to try to build the Soviet computer industry, and also completely failed. Uh, the Soviet Union knew it would take money to build the semiconductor industry and invested a lot of money. They knew it would take expertise, uh, but they couldn't get outside of the mindset of copying. When the when one of the first Soviet exchange students came from uh, the U.S. back to the Soviet Union, he bought, brought with him a chip from Texas Instruments, which at the time was one of the most advanced chips of its day. And he brought it to the minister who was in charge of microelectronics in the Soviet Union. And the minister took it in his office and pulled it under a microscope and looked at it. And he lifted his head up and said, copy it one for one, no deviations, I'll give you three months. And that was, that was the mindset from the earliest days of the semiconductor industry. And Copying was a fine strategy for an industry like atomic weapons, where there are actually very few advances in atomic weapons technology from 1945 to present. But in an industry that gallops forward at the rate of Moore's law, copying is a horrible strategy. And there's a plan, and this is characteristic of the Soviet Union, to have uh, an entire city dedicated to manufacturing chips, Zelenograd. Uh, I don't, where was Zelenograd? Did they build Zelenograd? They did indeed. It's still actually right outside of Moscow. Uh, and the Russian chip industry today, such as it is, very small, technologically backwards, very, is still located small. there. Uh, yeah. Practically non-existent at this point. Yeah. So this is, a, this is fascinating to me because it... it, it it seems to me that this is part of the story of the first Cold War that has been largely neglected because the focus has been on the space race, above all the nuclear weapons race, and then all the kind of proxy wars that historians spend a lot of time looking at. But, I mean, you, you won't find terribly much discussion of this in that enormous uh, multi-volume history of the Cold War that was published not so long ago. So this is a really important contribution of chip war. It makes you think again about... 
why it was that the United States ultimately won Cold War One. It, it won it because it established leadership in this crucial frontier technology that required, and this is the question I have for you, it seems to me that it required commercialization to propel forward the innovation, to incentivize the U.S. companies to keep pushing the frontier of, of Moore's law forward. And that could never happen in the Soviet system because there was never commercialization. You were just copying it, and that was it. Am I right that, in fact, it's the commercialization from the late 60s that keeps Moore's law happening? Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and you couldn't, I don't think, have the type of innovation and the steady pace of innovation that you had in the chip industry in a social system for that exact reason. It's, it's only the need for companies to compete in bringing out the next best chip to market that drives it forward. And if you look at where chips are going, the first uh, couple of years of the chip industry in the 1960s, they mostly go into rockets, guidance computers for rockets. But by 1970, they're largely going to consumer devices. And by the 1980s, it's 95% going to consumer devices. So it really is the consumer industry driving forward innovation and also funding the extraordinary capital expenditure necessary to make this innovation possible at a large enough scale. Um, so government funding remains important in the industry, but it's by far outplaced by consumer uh, demand in terms of what's driving firms' capital expenditures by as early as the 1970s. So uh, what goes wrong? Because uh, up until this point, we have a story of American triumph. Uh, the United States innovates, it attracts talent from abroad, it then commercializes, there's this happy partnership with the military-industrial complex, but it then goes soaring off into commercial exploitation. And the leading companies are Intel, Texas Instruments. And then at some point, somebody somewhere says, maybe it would be a better idea if we did the chips in Asia. What, when did that happen? Was there a moment of decision or did the offshoring, the transfer of productive capacity to Asia happen imperceptibly in response to the cost advantages of, of doing it there? And just to add a sort of footnote or supplementary question, would history have been different if Morris Chang had been made chief executive of Texas Instruments rather than passed over for that job? Yeah. That, that's, that, is, that is one of the great counterfactual questions, I think. If, if you look at why the chip industry has this deep interconnection with Asia that it has today, that dates from the earliest days of the industry. So Fairchild Semiconductor brought its first commercial chip to market in the early 60s, and at the exact same time was opening its first assembly facility in Hong Kong, precisely because of the wage differential. Uh, you could pay someone in Hong Kong at the time 25 cents an hour. It was a tenth of the wage you'd get in the U.S. And Fairchild tried to manufacture in the U.S. They went to uh, the backwoods of Maine. They opened a facility on a Navajo reservation in New Mexico. Anywhere they could find cheap labor, they tried. Uh, but nothing was as cheap as they could get in Hong Kong and then eventually Singapore, Taiwan, elsewhere in Asia. But next to the cost differential, you had an active strategy of governments in the region trying to pull in U.S. chipmakers, both because they realized that it was a great source of jobs for all of the farmers who were leaving the countryside looking for employment in the cities, and because they wanted to anchor the United States more firmly in their country. So if you look at the Taiwanese government, the Singaporean government, they were all thinking of the chip industry not only in economic terms, but also as a way to keep the U.S. interested 
in their security. And think of Taiwan, for example, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, the U.S. was losing the war in Vietnam. Nixon was discussing publicly a drawing down of U.S. commitments from Asia. At the same time, Kissinger was going to visit mainland China, beginning the process of shifting recognition away from Taiwan towards Beijing, a moment of immense risk for Taiwan. And so Taiwanese leaders asked themselves, what's the best strategy in this new world? And the conclusion they reached was the more U.S. investment, the better. And the best place to get U.S. investment was in the electronics sector. And the rationale was Americans might not want to defend Taiwan, but they'll be willing to defend Texas Instruments if it has a facility outside of Taipei. So that's, that was a key driver and still is a key driver uh, up to this day of why we have so much uh, chip industry footprint in East Asia. And when Morris Chang was passed over for the CEO job in Texas and was looking for something else to do, he was in his 50s, already very successful, uh, had really built the chip industry uh, himself. He was approached by the government of Taiwan, which is a, a country he'd been to only a couple of times in the context of Texas Instruments business trips. So his relationship with Taiwan didn't extend beyond his status as a former TI executive. But they came to him and said, would you like a blank check to build a chip industry in Taiwan? And he said, that sounds like an interesting proposal. And that's a huge turning point. One has to ask oneself if, if Texas Instruments made that decision on a rational basis. Because clearly, he already was, he'd already established a formidable reputation for his meticulousness. He was a perfectionist, which you have to be in this business. Why do you think he didn't get the job of, of Texas Instruments CEO? I think there are two explanations, maybe more. Um, one, some people suggested it was because he was Chinese. Um, he, he himself, and I interviewed him for this book, said that actually when he moved from Massachusetts to Texas, he found uh, much less discrimination in Texas than he had experienced in Massachusetts and, and really downplayed uh, how different it was being a, a Chinese-American in Dallas. But that's one, one possibility that some people have proposed. The other, which I think is certainly part of the answer, is that Chang had a new and revolutionary idea for chip industry business models. Up to that point, all chips were designed and manufactured by the same company. Uh, but Chang wanted to do something different. He, as early as the mid-1970s, was trying to get his colleagues at Texas Instruments to start what would later be called a foundry model. In other words, manufacturing chips for lots of different customers. Anyone who wanted to design a chip could come and manufacture. And, and at the time, his colleagues at TI said, well, Morris, it's an interesting idea, but there are no companies that just design chips and are looking for manufacturing services. And he said, well, if we build the capacity, there will be lots of firms that would prefer to design and trust the manufacturing with us because manufacturing is capital intensive. It's hard to do. And there are huge economies of scale uh, that accrue to it. And that was the business model he wanted to implement at TI. And it was something that TI leaders just couldn't get their heads around. But when the Taiwanese government came to him and said, what should we do for our semiconductor business, knowing much less than he did, they were happy to give him uh, a whole lot of money to build this entirely new business model in Taiwan. This brings me to another quotation uh, from your book. Uh, and, and it's the, the, the hinge point of our discussion. Uh, I've just received a stack of questions from the audience, and they're all focused on the contemporary issue, which is the crux of the latter part of your book, US v. China. So let me give you the key quotation. World War II was decided by steel and aluminum and followed shortly thereafter by the Cold War, which was defined by atomic weapons. The rivalry between the United States and China may well be determined by computing power. We've seen over the last, what, four years, uh, an increasing effort by the United States 
to flex its economic muscles in ways that are designed to hamper China's advance in this specific area. You go back to the entity list uh, uh, against Huawei. We now have the CHIPS Act, which is designed to promote uh, manufacture of chips in the United States. And since your books uh, went, when, since your book went to press, uh, the Biden administration has issued new uh, and far-reaching uh, measures restricting China's access to intellectual property and, in effect, to Americans with expertise in this area. So give us your assessment of this strategic effort, which I've heard described as a pursuit of sci-tech hegemony by the United States. Do you think this is the right strategy, fundamentally, for the U.S. to try and stop China catching up? And I guess it implies that China can catch up where the Soviet Union couldn't. If you want to understand what the U.S. government's trying to accomplish, I think we need to return to the early days of the chip industry, where there was a deep uh, uh, relationship, interconnection between military power and, and, and computing power. And, and although the United States has forgotten about this relationship because we've taken our military advantages for granted over the past 30 years, the reality is that any military system today is crucially reliant on computing power. And if you think of uh, what... Uh, what it takes to, for example, fly a drone through a battle space. You're talking immense computing power uh, to identify the environment, to uh, assess threats that are coming in, to know where it's flying. Uh, lots of sensors, LIDAR sensors, infrared sensors, radar sensors, all of which require semiconductors to process the signals and uh, send them to the um, and, and send them to the, the chips that are computing uh, inside the drone. So military power is all about computing power. Uh, and that's important because the only advantage the U.S. has vis-a-vis China is that it's got better quality systems. And most of the quality differential is in terms of computing. If you ask yourself who's going to have a bigger navy, the answer is obviously the Chinese. Who's going to have a bigger air force? Obviously the Chinese. Who will have more missiles? Obviously the Chinese. They're going to outcompete us tank for tank, ship for ship. And we know that. They know that. Everyone knows that. The difference, as we see in the battlefields in Ukraine every single day, is that Western technology enabled by American computing works better. It actually hits its target. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's far more reliable. Um, our capabilities at intelligence, search, reconnaissance are far better than the Russians, uh, which is why the Ukrainians, with just a handful of HIMARS systems, have been able to turn the tide of the war in a way that the entire missile arsenal of the Russians, almost all expended at this point, have failed even to knock out Ukrainian telecoms infrastructure, which is sort of a horrifying failure if you're a defense planner. And that differential, you know, there's a number of different factors at play. Russian morale is bad, etc. But Ultimately, U.S. weapon systems work better because they have better computing behind them. And if you ask yourself how can the U.S. retain its position in Asia or really prevent the deterioration of the military balance in the Taiwan Straits, there's no story you can tell in which the U.S. is going to have as many ships or missiles or tanks as, as the Chinese. The only advantage we've really got at this point is the advantage of computing power, and that's what the Biden administration is trying to defend. And that leads me to the first of our questions from the floor and thank you to all of you who who've given us questions biden's chip policy will hurt china in the short term but in the middle term won't china develop its domestic industry and market to replace what we've taken away that's the big question won't they just catch up faster by being shut out in this way what do you think well they're going to try but it's going to be enormously difficult uh the machinery needed to make advanced semiconductors is the most complicated machinery ever invented. Um, the, so a, a chip on your iPhone will have 
10 or 15 billion transistors, each one the size of a coronavirus, actually slightly smaller. And the tools needed to produce coronavirus-sized transistors by the billions are, are mind-bogglingly complex. Just to give you one example, the, one of the tools you need is called a extreme ultraviolet lithography tool, which costs $150 million a piece, took three decades to develop. This tool has the flattest mirrors ever invented by humans inside of it, one of the most powerful lasers ever produced for commercial purposes inside of it. So many components that the company that produces it doesn't know the number inside of it. I, I have multiple interviews with them. I've asked them. They know that the laser component alone has 457,000 components, but they don't know the uh, aggregate number. And this machine has constantly explosions of several hundred thousand degrees Fahrenheit inside of it inside of a manufacturing facility and is able to contain it all and produce just the right amount of extreme ultraviolet light to carve uh, coronavirus transistors on chips. This is not easy equipment to replicate. Who builds those? This is built by the Dutch company called ASML, which has a 100% market share in this equipment. Yeah. And if you look- Remember those initials, ASML, <laughs> like almost up there with TSMC in terms of its importance <laughs> in this story. And it's like the most important company you hadn't heard of until tonight. And if you look across the types of machinery needed to make advanced semiconductors, many of which are still produced and assembled here in California, what you'll find is machinery that is uh, that complicated at every step of the production process. Moreover, this machinery is all developed and next generations are developed in close consultation with the small number of leading chip firms. So for example, in, in this, the equipment firms that are building this equipment, they'll make their next generation machine working with TSMC, Samsung, and Intel, because the machines will only work if they're perfectly matched to these companies' processes. And these companies' processes only work because they're perfectly matched to the next generation machines coming online. So if you're outside of this loop, you're far, far away from the cutting edge. And as of right now, every Chinese firm is outside of the loop. I actually met Morris Chang uh, two and a half years ago in Taipei. We had a memorable meal together, and I asked him the question, can mainland China catch up with TMC, TSMC? And he replied, they, they are five years behind us, but they were five years behind us five years ago, and they'll be five years behind us five years from now. So he, he's absolutely shared your view, view that this, this catch-up was Im impossible. Uh, but then the next question that's come from the floor is a slightly diff different one, um, which goes like this. The CHIPS bill and other measures that we've discussed will withhold the technology for the most advanced CHIPS from China. Some fear they'll retaliate and withhold rare, earths, uh, rare earth metals. What do you think? Is there a retaliation strategy for China? There could be. Um, the, the track record is that China doesn't retaliate. When the U.S. imposed... Uh, restrictions prohibiting the transfer of advanced chips to Huawei in 2020. China issued angry statements. Uh, it set up new regulatory measures, allowing it to retaliate against foreign firms, U.S. firms. And then in the end, it did nothing uh, after several months of, of huffing and puffing. Uh, this time could be different. Certainly, these measures are far more sweeping. Uh, they were I don't think deliberately timed, but they happen to occur right around the party Congress, which I'm sure uh, Xi Jinping has noticed. But the reality is that China doesn't have very many ways to retaliate in a way that don't impose a lot of costs on itself as well. And rare earths, I think, is a great example of this. And rare earths aren't actually that rare. Uh, they're just uh, they're somewhat expensive and very dirty to process. And so they tend to uh, be centered in places that have weak environmental rules. And today that means 
China. If China were to cut off access to rare earths, it would cause huge problems across the electronic supply chain, including the country where most electronics are assembled in China. Uh, and it would be easy to set up rare earth processing facilities in Australia or even the U.S., which actually has a fair amount of rare earth supplies. It's just that facilities aren't online right now because it's cheaper and easier to do right now in China. So I, I think retaliation is possible, um, but it won't be costless for China because ultimately anything they do in the rare earth space or in against Apple, for example, which is also often discussed, would hit China just as hard as it would hit us. So uh, there's a couple of uh, questions here roughly pointing in the same direction. Why can't we, the USA, produce the semiconductors that Taiwan manufactures? And I'll follow that up with a, a more specific question. Intel's laid out a very ambitious plan to catch up to and overtake TSMC in the next few years. How realistic is this? Uh, so I guess at the heart of the, the CHIPS Act is industrial policy, as we used to call it, a concerted effort with support of the federal government to kind of restore American leadership, uh, or at least to catch up with, with Taiwan. Uh, does $52 billion buy you uh, a catch-up with TSMC, do you think? Well, Intel, which is the biggest U.S. chipmaker and used to be the world's leader in terms of production technology, around five years ago started falling behind TSMC and is now far behind. And it's actually interesting to ask why can't Intel catch up? Because Intel, Samsung, and TSMC all buy their production equipment from the exact same companies. They have the same tools in their factories. They buy the same chemicals basically from the same companies as well. So if you walk through their facilities, uh, you'll see the same stuff inside of them. But for whatever reason, uh, the, the secret sauce, if you will, of TSMC works better than that at Intel. And uh, it's, it's basically impossible to ascertain why other than to say that TSMC has a research and development process that's better than Intel's right now. And that's been the case for the past five years. Can Intel catch up? Maybe. Uh, I think most people in the chip industry aren't betting on it. Uh, and the problem that Intel faces is not money. Intel has a fair amount of money. It's been one of the most profitable tech firms in U.S. history. Uh, it's just that the technology doesn't work as well at TSMC. So there's a new CEO at Intel, Pat Gelsinger, who's trying to turn things around. The proof will ultimately be in the, in the chips, whether he can actually do so. But I would say as of right now, if you had to bet, you'd bet on TSMC rather than on Intel. So what about just TSMC comes here? And they have come here, as I understand it. There's a pretty substantial TSMC facility in Arizona. Am I That's right? right, under construction right now. So isn't the solution simple? Okay, TSMC, you won, you guys are the best, but location is looking a little strategically iffy, so just move here. That's what the CHIPS Act is going to do. So the CHIPS Act is going to fund Intel, TSMC, and Samsung to build new facilities in the U.S. Um, the, the problem is that $52 billion doesn't get you that much when a single advanced production facility costs $20 billion a piece. So we're going to get a bit more advanced fabrication in the U.S., TSMC's facility in Arizona, Samsung's in uh, Texas, Intel's in Ohio. But the reality is that with this new funding, we'll have a bit of diversification away from Taiwan, but most of our most advanced ships will still be coming from Taiwan in five years' time. And Intel, as part of its strategy to turn itself around, is still producing a lot of chips in-house, but it's outsourcing its most advanced chips to TSMC produced in Taiwan. Okay, now we come to the heart of the matter. Are we in Cold War II, do you think? If you ask Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, uh, he 
gave a speech about a month ago outlining their technology strategy. For a long time, the U.S. Uh, approach to semiconductors was to make sure that any adversary was two generations behind, similar to the five years that Morris Chang told you about. And as of one month ago, the approach is different per Sullivan's speech. Now we're trying to increase the gap between the U.S. and China, partly by CHIPS Act funding, hopefully accelerating development in the U.S., but perhaps more importantly, by stopping China from moving forward. So now there's no ambiguity in U.S. government policy. Our goal is to stop semiconductor advances in China, thereby to stop the rollout of advanced AI in China and to make sure that all of it happens offshore of China. So this is a, a fascinating uh, phenomenon that the administration is essentially pursuing a kind of Cold War strategy, but it just doesn't like using the words cold and war. But even the New York Times had a piece just a couple of weeks ago saying, it kind of feels like a Cold War. And I'm trying to think what the implications are of this second Cold War. Thank you very much. In the sense that we're up against a more economically and technologically formidable opponent. I mean, the Chinese economy is already by on a purchasing power parity basis, the same size or larger than the US economy, whereas the Soviet economy was never more than about 40% the size. It's clearly an economically more formidable rival. And as you've shown in your book, they're a lot closer in terms of this kind of technology than the Soviets were able to be in that we're actively having to work to stop them catching up. And I just wonder where this goes let me try an analogy out on you that our old friend at Harvard, Graham Allison, wrote uh, about not so long ago. And that's not a Cold War analogy. It's a World War analogy. And essentially, Graham Allison argued in a piece that I think was in National Review, we're in danger of doing to China now what we did to Japan in the 1930s. In the 1930s, there were different commercial sanctions imposed on Japan, Japan was cut off from, from uh, oil, uh, and that ultimately led to the extraordinarily risky and disastrous attack on Pearl Harbor. And I think, I think Graham was arguing that there's a danger something similar happens here where we so constrain China, we essentially say, you cannot catch up. You're not going to catch up. We're going to freeze you, not just five years behind, but maybe 10 years behind. Uh, isn't the danger that China then concludes, well, in that case, we have to invade Taiwan. That's actually our only solution. I've certainly seen that written by some Chinese bloggers, not from the government side, but that's not being censored in China, as you'd expect it to be if it was clearly unwelcome in Beijing. Is there a danger in your mind that Cold War II actually ends up being World War III? I think that is a risk. I think there are risks on both sides of the equation. There's a risk that Excessive controls right now make Beijing take risky moves in the way that you've outlined. There's also a risk in not taking efforts to restrain China's access to computing power and thereby seeing the military balance shift even more. And I, th I think it's just worth thinking about how dramatically the military balance has already shifted. I like, I like thinking back to the 1995-1996 Taiwan Straits crisis when uh, the Chinese shot a couple of missiles over Taiwan, and then Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, ordered two aircraft carriers to sail around Taiwan, one of them transiting through the Taiwan Straits. That would never happen today because the risk to the carrier would be too severe. The question now is not, can we sail a carrier through the Taiwan Straits? Can we operate one in the Western Pacific, given the long range uh, and, and high accuracy of Chinese missiles? I mean, now we're talking about 
a war with China involving strikes on U.S. bases in Guam, all across Japan. Chinese capabilities are far, far advanced compared to where they were even 10 years ago, and they're going to advance further over the next five or 10 years in terms of number of systems produced uh, and catch up in, in by that metric. So the only hope we have of uh, of of slowing down the deterioration of our military position is by slowing down Chinese advances, and that's what the Biden administration is betting is the greater risk than the risk that Graham Allison sketched out. I would give you one other difference with with Japan in 1939, 1940, 1941, when the Roosevelt administration was uh, increasing its sanctions on Japan. The export controls on China that the Biden administration has laid out are sweeping in some ways, uh, but they're targeted in others. They're sweeping in that they are an effort to call to a complete halt China's advances, but they do nothing to target any Chinese chip activities beyond the cutting edge. So anything that is not technologically advanced going into um, um, low-tech consumer devices, for example, all that remains untouched and China still has the capacity to roll out its capabilities there. It's only the cutting edge that's being targeted. Whereas the sanctions on Japan, it's worth remembering, were on oil, not just advanced oil, all oil. Uh, and so it, it had ramifications not just for the Japanese Navy, but for Japanese automobiles as well. So the, I think that is an important difference uh, to draw out. But but yes, the, the risk is is real. Um, it's a risk that I worry about. And it seems to me odd that of those sophisticated, cutting-edge semiconductors, 90-plus percent are manufactured on an island that China claims belongs to it. Surely the simple solution for China is to invade and take over and then own TSMC. Is that a viable option? Could, could they do that? If, if by invade we're thinking a D-Day style invasion, I think the answer is no. Um, the facilities wouldn't survive an invasion, both because semiconductor fabs have lots of explosive chemicals inside, coupled with the most precise machinery in human history. This is perfectly designed not to survive a war. And because the Taiwanese would probably blow them up, and because they didn't, the U.S. would probably blow them up. Uh, and even if they were intact, you'd still need all of the TSMC staff to keep working there, none of them sabotaging, all of them trying to keep producing chips. And even then, you still need U.S. tools and Japanese tools and chemicals and software updates from abroad. I think it's highly implausible approaching a 0% probability that China could succeed in invading and grabbing TSMC facilities. What I worry about more is... As the U.S. military position gets weaker and weaker every year, Taiwan's confidence in our ability to come to their aid declines year after year. And China's ability to pressure Taiwan in scenarios between peace and war grows. For example, grabbing one of the offshore islands and challenging the U.S., do we intervene? Do we not intervene? Or imposing customs checks on 5% of the ships going into Taipei Harbor is that a blockade or is that a quarantine? <laughs> uh, is that something that Biden would be willing to risk World War III over or not? And the moment that China has some sort of success in this sort of salami slicing away of uh, Taiwan's sovereignty is the moment that the Taiwanese look at their military defense plans, all of which are predicated on giving the U.S. enough time to come to the rescue. And if the Taiwanese start to think we're not going to be able to come to the rescue, we're not willing to come to the rescue, then fighting for their sovereignty becomes a hopeless task, in which case China could follow up and say, by the way, uh, we'd like to have more access to TSMC's facilities. And Taiwan could, in a couple of years' time, find itself in a position where it feels unsafe to say no. And that's why there's a deep relationship between our military power dwindling though it is in the Asia-Pacific region, and control or access to TSMC's shipping facilities. This brings me to one of the questions that came from the floor earlier. Uh, in the scenario that you just alluded to, 
where there's some military operation, but TSMC is destroyed or so badly damaged that it can't function. If a missile were to take out TSMC's fab that produces 90% of the world's uh, logic chips, what happens next? Uh, I mean, that seems like it would make... Uh, the economic consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine seem like a kind of rounding error. This would be economically hugely disruptive for the world, no? Well, Apple produces chips for all of its devices at TSMC, so you can cross Apple off your um, your list of functional companies at that point. Most smartphones, with the exception of maybe a couple of smartphones produced by Samsung, require chips produced at TSMC, so the half a trillion dollar smartphone industry would go to something close to zero the year after. Um, around a third of PC processor chips are produced in Taiwan. Uh, that too would uh, disappear. Uh, cell phone towers would be basically impossible to produce the next year because a cell phone tower is a piece of metal with a bunch of chips on top of it. Um, automobiles, as we found out over the past couple of years, have dozens or in many cases hundreds of chips inside. Now, these chips are made uh, in many places around the world, Europe, the US, Japan, but Taiwan is a major producer of auto chips as well. The rollout of data centers would grind to a halt because many of the key chips in data centers that are running artificial intelligence applications are produced only in Taiwan. And the capacity in Taiwan is uh, crucial at the leading edge, but also more broadly, one third of the processing power we add each year across the world is produced in Taiwan. So that's capacity both at older technology nodes and the leading edge that we couldn't rebuild rapidly. And you start going through sectors of the economy and asking, could we survive with dramatically less computing power added next year? And the answer is, in a lot of cases, not easily. Economists try to put numbers on this. The, the first order cost in terms of goods that couldn't be produced the next year is easily in the many hundreds of billions of dollars. The second order cost uh, is, is almost certainly in the trillions. And the reality is it would take a decade to rebuild the capacity anywhere else in the world. Uh, there's there's time for a couple more questions, I think, uh, but we'll have to keep the answers uh, short. I want to get through as many of these as possible. One that came in on, uh, from an online uh, listener or viewer, will open source architecture be part of the U.S. strategy to gain market share? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of... Um there's a lot of excitement about a new architecture called RISC-V, which is open source. So rather than being controlled by one or a handful of companies, it's open source. That, I think, is an important trend in the industry. That's a separate question from the manufacturer of chips. You can manufacture chips with different architectures. I think we're going to see more open source chips. We've seen the U.S. government get excited about uh, open source architectures. That doesn't solve the problem, though, of who's got the manufacturing capacity to actually make chips. Well, we've reached that point where it really is time uh, for one last question. And I want to pick a question that, that I've been wanting to ask you uh, for a while, uh, because uh, you told me that you'd had this idea for the book. It seems like quite recently, and I remember thinking, fantastic idea, and expecting that in five years' time, you'd uh, send me the manuscript, and it's published. And so this is the question. How long did it take you to write and research this book? And what is your strategy or are your strategies to keep up with the constant, almost daily changes in this dynamic field? I would like to know. <laughs> how did you do this and how do you keep up? Well, what I found was actually the, the best way to, for, 
the key to the research behind this book was interviews with people in the industry. Uh, there are good sources you can read, but there's nothing better, especially when you're talking about cutting edge technologies than talking to people who are working in the sector. And uh, the way I spent my pandemic lockdown was on Zoom calls with people all across the world, from Taiwan to Japan to, uh, to, to the Netherlands, asking them about their jobs and where they fit in the supply chain and uh, what they would do if they lost access to the most advanced uh, processor chips. Uh, and, and so uh, that, that was really the, the core of the research behind this book. There were some historical archives behind it. There was a fair amount of reading behind it, but ultimately it was conversations with uh, several dozen, over 100 uh, chip engineers, uh, physicists, chemists, people who worked at semiconductor firms that provided the core of the research. And I was impressed by the number of names in the acknowledgements, uh, which uh, speaks volumes to your ability to do that kind of research, which is not what academic historians normally do. And, and how, do you, how do you keep up with this? There's a news story on average twice a day on this subject right now. I mean, you must be feeling already that it's time for a second revised edition. <laughs> well, a, a, a lot has changed, although I think actually the, the, the key conclusion of the book, which is that we're in a relentless struggle for control of, of computing power at a battle that's between companies, but also between countries has only become more true since, since I started the book. And the industry itself took a long time to realize that for a long time, the industry wanted to believe that globalization was here to stay and that politics wouldn't get in the way of their business. And I think now everyone realizes that actually that's an untenable business model. Whether you like it or not, the reality is that both from Beijing and from Washington, bifurcation is the, the new strategy and that businesses have to figure out how to adjust around that. We've, we've got a little bit more time than I'd, I'd realized, and that's great because this allows me to do the thing that historians are not supposed to do. That is talk about the future. Uh, because in a way, you, you leave us uh, on a cliff edge. Uh, it feels like Cold War II is a relatively early stage. Uh, there's a hot war raging in Ukraine with Russia uh, as a kind of junior partner of China, not getting much support from China, but not being openly condemned by it. And you've raised the scenario that you could get some kind of a showdown over Taiwan relatively imminently. The U.S. is embarking on what feels like economic warfare. That's often what it's described as in the media these days. Where does this go? A, Cold War II is like Cold War I. The United States wins, but it takes about 40 years. B, this time is different. Maybe the Cold War ends with the other side, the authoritarian regime winning. Which scenario do you think is more plausible or am I thinking about it in the wrong way? Should we expect a completely different time frame, different trajectory from anything we saw in the first Cold War? I think it's, it's easier to make confident predictions actually about the, the Chinese side of the story because we've got, for now the past decade, a track record of China pursuing its own semiconductor strategy domestically. Uh, which has been mixed at best in its results. The Chinese have poured tens of billions of dollars into their chip industry with uh, some successes, but also a whole lot of failures. And the amount of spending that uh, that they've directed to the chip industry is, I think, probably unsustainable in the long run. I think they're going to pursue this policy for the next couple of years, but ultimately I suspect they will realize that actually they can only make the advances they need by relying on technology from the rest of the world, which means the, the U.S. Uh, first and foremost. So I suspect the Chinese will fail to uh, reach the cutting edge domestically uh, and that they're going to have to come to terms with the fact. And in some ways, they, 
kind of already are coming to terms with the fact because they keep trying to acquire this technology uh, as as the U.S. ratchets up regula- uh, regulations and restrictions. But they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that they're dependent on the rest of the world, on the U.S., on Japan, on the Netherlands, on Taiwan for technology that they need. I suspect that's the most likely outcome, even though China won't like it. That implies a kind of relatively peaceful, soft landing right. in which perhaps after uh, Xi Jinping's time, a future Chinese leadership says, okay, uh, we were only kidding, let's go back to win-win. But at this point, I don't see the United States saying, sure, we'll do detente. What strikes me most, and I, I just heard Secretary of State Anthony Blinken speak earlier today at the Hoover Institution, is that the United States government seems pretty committed to Cold War in all but name and isn't about to cut China slack if the Chinese dial down their, their rhetoric. So just for a final uh, stare into the future, where does the U.S. go from here? Has Cold War become the only bipartisan issue in America? The only thing Republicans and Democrats agree on is that China bad? Yeah. Where does that lead? I, 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 think, I think what the U.S. has concluded is that it wants to retain its military edge. Um, and the, its military edge now more than any point since the 1980s is under threat. Uh, is has been degraded dramatically uh, in East Asia, and that's what the commitment is around. That's why you've seen these new export controls, uh, which from the Trump administration, the Biden administration, there's been a lot of uh, agreement uh, within the national security bureaucracy around this issue. Um, so that's a bipartisan issue, retaining U.S. military edge, and there's a key technological component that we're seeing uh, acted out right now, which is containing China's ability to uh, bring to bear computing technologies for its military. Does that produce a peaceful outcome? I certainly hope so. And I think the best strategy for deterring a Chinese attack on Taiwan, and if you listen to Xi's speech at the Party Congress, uh, you know the, the promise wasn't for a peaceful unification. The promise was to keep non-peaceful means on the table uh, in case necessary. Uh, well, reunifying Taiwan, and of course reunifying is a, a false historical narrative, uh, reunifying Taiwan is a major goal of the party. So I think China does need to be deterred in Taiwan. I think our ability to deter China has declined dramatically, which is why I think these restrictions are necessary as a last-ditch effort to shore up our military position in Asia. Well, Chris, it's been absolutely fascinating. I can assure everybody uh, watching that this is a must-read book. I can't think of a book that will better inform you about the strange phenomenon of Cold War II. Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. I want to thank Chris. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Neil Ferguson. Thank you very much and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.